See, the thing is, like, I think a lot of people are afraid to go to go play so far on the edges because when you go so far on the edge, you are you will inevitably face lows because when you risk hard, there's consequences. Take a look at my fingers and the frostbite I got in Antarctica. Right. When you play on the edge, there's a potential for a lot of pain and you will at some point face a lot of pain. But the thing is, I would rather live my life with with ups and downs rather than static. Everybody, if you're hearing this, you have once again tuned to the Consequence of Habit podcast. This is your host, JT. Hey, as a reminder, April 5th, we are having our first in-person event. This is a mindfulness meditation and movement workshop with retired Navy SEAL Commander John McCaskill, Dr. Teresa Larson. And this is specifically for veterans, active duty military, uh, reservist guard, uh, and first responders. So if you live in Philadelphia area, uh, Delaware, Maryland, D.C., and you'd like to attend free of charge. We've got, we've got some gifts, too, once you're there. Uh, if you'd like to attend, just log on to consequenceofhabit.org. Uh, go to events, and from there, you'll see the registration. All you got to do is register. Register and show up. Or there's the other part. All right, this week on the podcast, we welcome Akshay Nanavati. Akshay is the author of a book called Fearvana. And before I get into exactly what that is, uh, let me describe a little bit of, of Akshay's past. Akshay is a man who, who's truly touched both sides of the habit spectrum. He's been an alcoholic, a drug addict, a mountaineer, an entrepreneur, speaker, a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, he's somebody who suffered from PTSD. And he's developed this concept of leaning into fear, of deliberate discomfort, with the idea that discomfort is going to find you regardless. Fear is going to find you regardless. Uh, so why not embrace it? Why not lean into it and, and live these experiences on your terms? I found this conversation extremely motivating. Uh, and now I'm warning you, Akshay, he's, he's not your normal guy. He's getting ready to undertake 10 days of total darkness. And you're probably asking yourself, why would anyone do that? Well, he's going to explain it to you because I needed a little explanation myself. All right, we're going to cut away for a second here for a little housekeeping as you all know, I'm a huge fan of beer. Without my, my love of beer and, and especially the leaded kind, I'm not even quite sure if this whole consequence of habit thing, whatever it came to be. But at some point, uh, me and alcohol decided we had to part ways. And luckily, there's a company there called Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing makes the finest non-alcoholic beer, uh, in my opinion, on the market. They've been a part of my journey from... For a long time now. So if you guys like beer, you like, and I'm not talking crap beer. If you like crap beer, just go ahead and you can just fast forward this. But if you like good beer, then do yourself a favor. Log on to athleticbrewing.com. Use the promo code capital COH20 and get 20% off your first order. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is JT here from the Consequence of Habit podcast. Today, Akshay. We are joined by by a good friend that I think, uh, or soon to be a good friend, Akshay Nanavati. Um, Akshay, where are you right now? I'm currently in India, in Bangalore, India. Okay. Before yeah. we get this thing started, Akshay, I want to tell you how I came, I came across your story. Okay. Um, I was sitting around one day and I was looking at, I have this, this, this concept that people that are in some form, I don't even like the word recovery, but but maybe had uh, on the spectrum of habits have been on the negative side at one point. 
But some of those same characteristics can allow somebody to be highly successful as long as that's kind of been directed in the right direction, right? Like uh, I had another guest on here and they said, if, if, if you look at somebody's use of whatever their poison is, it's every single day. Um, you're doing it, you know, day in, day out. Your mind is on it. Your thought process is on it. If that can be generated towards something positive, man, the sky's the limit. So I looked up successful people in recovery and your name came up. Hmm. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Your name came up and, okay. and I, I looked, I think I looked you up on Instagram. I hit you up and you, know, you never know how these things are to go. And you were crazy responsive oh, right back uh, at me and, and, here we are, man. So, so first off, I wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Absolutely, brother. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to share the journey, knowing yeah. it can make a difference. So I know a bit of the journey, uh, not from talking personally, but just kind of doing research. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's let's break down this concept of, of Firvana. Uh, where where did that come from? Because like anything else, uh, a lot of times this comes from it starts at a low point. Um, and how did you, how did that? you know, the obstacle become the way for you. Roger that. So the, let's start with what the concept is. So fearvana, the idea is fear and nirvana, which are often framed as two seemingly contradictory ideas that I have come to learn through a lifetime experience, as well as research in neuroscience, psychology, and spirituality, that they are in fact complementary, And that fear is not the antithesis of nirvana. Fear is the access point to it. And in, in our world, we often demonize fear as something bad, right? Well, people will say, be fearless. Don't be scared. We even hear the word fear and think of it as something bad. And what the ethos of fear of honor is to help combat that demonization of fear and at a meta level, suffering of any kind, and to frame it, to help people start developing a positive relationship to it, because we're going to go through suffering. We're going to go through fear in life. And how do we use that as an access point to bliss and to even enlightenment? And that's the very essence of fear of honest, to help people develop a positive relationship to fear, to suffering of any kind, and then use it to do three things, find, live, and love their worthy struggle. Worthy struggle is your path, your mission in life. And so how it came to be, I mean, to go a little back, like uh, my journey to Fearvana kind of began when I enlisted in the Marine Corps. So before that, I had like I'd moved from Austin, Texas, from um, India to Singapore to Austin, Texas. Soon after moving there, got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol, just this very self-destructive lifestyle. Like I still have these scars on my arm from cutting myself and burning myself and was in this dark place. I lost two friends to that lifestyle and was heading down that path myself until I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. And that movie was the trigger that changed my life. Mm. From there, I decided to stop living this selfish, worthless, meaningless existence and wanted to do something. I mean, inspired by that movie and the men, watching men sacrifice their lives for another human being, just the courage of that. It had me question this worthless life and ask myself, would I be able to do the same thing? So almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs. And despite two doctors telling me that boot camp, like military boot camp would kill me because of a blood disorder that I was born with, I enlisted in the Marines. Mm -hmm. And obviously I survived, but not only did I survive, but I thrived, graduated infantry school as an honor graduate of my platoon. And since there, that in many ways, when I look back at it, that was the birthplace of fear of honor because the Marines taught me the beauty of suffering. It taught me the gift in confronting yourself and going to war with yourself in facing your fears in, in engaging adversity instead of instead of avoiding it and the immense amount of power and bliss and confidence and that develops from these experiences when you put yourself in such a situation where you have to go to war with yourself to find out how strong you are 
And that from the Marines, I started to look for other ways to confront myself. I went into mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, like nature became my playground, you know, and I did every outdoor sport almost you could think of. I fractured four bones in three months from skydiving, rock climbing. I might went hard on that edge, you know. And that all like eventually then I got deployed to Iraq in 2007 as an infantry Marine, where one of my jobs was to walk in front of vehicles looking for bombs for IEDs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. And that was obviously a somewhat dangerous job. But by this point, I started to develop a pretty good comfort with playing in the arena of fear, you know, and so I thrived out there, too. I mean, of course, it was hard. War is not a easy experience. And of course, you deal with adversity. But I remember writing in my journal when I came like before leaving that I'm going to miss this place when I go home, you know, so I found peace even in war, but came back from the war, struggled, struggled in this world, wanted to go back. I started drinking heavily, lost a friend in the war, lost a couple of junior Marines to suicide, was diagnosed with PTSD, struggled with depression, heavy drinking. I mean, drinking 750 milliliters of vodka a day for days on end until one morning when I woke up and was seconds away from taking a knife and slitting my wrist. That moment was rock bottom. And coming out of that is what eventually led to what I do now with fear of honor. Actually, this, this, I mean, you're not the first person I've talked to that, that have kind of, uh, they live on the edge, whether that's good, bad, indifferent. Have you, have you thought about that? I mean, I had a prior guest go, when I was born, God touched me and he said, excess, whatever you're going to do, you're going to do in excess, whether that's good, bad. And, and mm. I kind of feel like maybe you've been touched by that, uh, touched in the mm. same way. Uh, have you ever questioned like, why, why? am I not in the middle? What, what drives me to either, whether it be destructive or whether it's something, uh, uh, positive, you know, challenging yourself and, in, you know, and really diving deep into this, this, uh, pain, pleasure place in your brain. Uh, yeah. like what, what lights that fire? Do you think? No, great question. You know, so I've been blessed to have lived uh, many lifetimes worth of experiences in my years, and I've tasted a life of comfort, of opulence, of luxury. I could honestly sit on my ass for the rest of my life, not doing shit in a very comfortable way. And I'd be set, you know, um, between myself and my family. And we have the financial resources to do so. You know, I've, I've done pretty well now in my business and whatnot, and my family is well off, too. But having tasted the life of the the, the norm, I, and, and having gone also played on those edges. And I, I don't just mean going to war. I've worked with survivors of sex, sex trafficking. I've done volunteer work in conflict zones. I've worked with former child soldiers. I've volunteered in leper colonies and people with extreme poverty. You know, I've seen the edges and the darkness of the human condition, both within and without. And I and even beyond the outdoor sports, I've spent seven days in darkness. I have run plenty of ultra marathons. You know, I've done these very intense things on the edge. And after having gone there, I would never never not choose that life. See, the thing is like, I think a lot of people are afraid to go to go play so far on the edges because when you go so far on the edge, you are, you will inevitably face lows because when you risk hard, there's consequences. Take a look at my fingers and the frostbite I got in Antarctica, right? When you play on the edge, there's a potential for a lot of pain and you will at some point face a lot of pain. But the thing is, I would rather live my life with with ups and downs rather than static. A lot of people live their life because they're too scared for the, they're too scared to take the risk for the high and because they're too afraid of the low because they 
they if they leap outside outside onto the edge there's a strong chance they will fall and crash and you will at some point and out of the fear for that crash they stay in the middle but the thing is you cannot have a summit of a mountain unless there is a valley without us without a summits and valleys everything is flat ground and the mundane while of course i embrace it now i struggled with it for a long time between my voyages onto the edge the mundane has its place and it wouldn't be as well received but it wouldn't be as well received had I not experienced the edge when you can see human beings, we also think of things in relative terms, standard psychology, like is a very simplistic level. I compare one vacation to the next. Why do I like this blender as opposed to another blender? Right. We think of things in comparison to other things. And so when you play so far on the edge, it gives you a greater appreciation for the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember coming back from boot camp and just feeling like a million dollars because I got to sit on a couch or coming back from three weeks in Antarctica and the way a hot shower felt in that moment, heavenly, you know? So I will never stop going far out there because it just amplifies the intensity of life in a way that is so raw, so pure, so powerful. I mean, it you taste life in a way that is, I don't think a lot of people get like, and it doesn't have to be going to Antarctica or anything like that. It just means going far out beyond what you know. And you you will get to you will get to experience the worth of life in a way that you will not in the norm, in the mundane. And the intensity of that life is magnificent. Like that's what I experienced in Antarctica, you know. And again, it, it means that when you experience am, when everything in life is amplified, it means the highs are higher, but it also means the lows are lower. And that's the thing that a lot of people, like, it's it's hard. I still go through my lows when you're in Antarctica and you hit some of the pain caves or on ultra marathons. Those lows are fucking miserable. Yeah. <laughs> They're absolutely miserable, but I would never trade them for a minute. This idea of, of volunteering for pain, right? Because I, I and this is just my, my own, uh, this is me on my own soapbox. Excuse me. We live in a world now where distractions are everywhere. We live in a world where comfort is everywhere. Everything's right in front of us. And I, believe me, I'm, it's not like I'm living some, some lifestyle where, where it makes me appreciate uh, or, or I'm doing without a lot of these things, which makes those, when I do have them, feel that much better. Uh, but I think it's the same reason things like, like the Tough Mudder or these, these other things, they give you a, a, just a taste of what the human experience is supposed to be part of like this. We're not supposed to, we're not supposed to be this safe. We're not supposed to be this well fed, um, this distracted and, and these wars that you, you go, uh, through like in your own mind, I think it's huge. I mean, you could just take fasting, right? Hey, don't eat for two days and then have something to eat. How good does that taste? You know, yeah. sh- showering, uh, don't shower for a couple of days, like you said, and how, how <laughs> great would a hot shower, uh, yeah. So I, I completely agree, and I think uh, comfort and and this constant dopamine—it's a Trojan horse for a life of pain. And when we're when we're living this 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 zone of comfort, like you said, this static, this this right smack in the the middle. Um, and and if you don't, what what, what is the phrase? If you don't seek uh, pain, it's going to find you. Is, am, am I saying that correct? Yeah, well, how I like to put it is if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. 100%. And in my own experiences, it sounds like you've lived some of the same. When when you try and feel that 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 rush of dopamine all the time and without mm-hmm. having those lows, it's, it's crazy because all it is is uh, you would think you would be happy all the time and it, it, it brings nothing but misery and extended pain. 
It's wild. Absolutely. So, Absolutely, man. All right. Yeah. So, so what is this moment? Yeah, you're 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 out of the Marines. Uh, you're living through some some pretty heavy survivor's guilt. Uh, you're numbing yourself uh, w- with whatever poisons, right? It's almost irrelevant. It sounds like it was it was alcohol. What is this moment where you're like, ah, man, this is I'm you know I'm thinking about taking my own life. Drastic changes need to happen. Take us from there. How does that process begin? Because there's there's a lot of people out there going to hear this that that have been in or or going towards that state. Mm-hmm. You know, coming out of that moment, it wasn't, and I always like to reinforce this point. It wasn't like that aha. That was the trigger that changed things, but that wasn't one aha and magically life got better yeah, that day, right? Course, yeah. It was a rocky, slow, brutal, clawing your way out of this abyss. I broke my sobriety again multiple times after that. I hit lows again after that. And you have to keep fighting. So, but the thing is, and this is what like, I wish it wasn't this way, but it just is. And this is why it's so hard is that to, to get out of the darkness, you have to, at one point, go deeper into the darkness. And this sounds very paradoxical, right? Like there's, and and it's two sides. Like there's a place for escaping the darkness and finding joy triggers. Like sometimes when you're in pain, you just want to do things that feel good. And I get it. Like watch a fun movie, listen to some good music, hang out with friends. There's a time to escape the darkness and to just experience like what I call the joy triggers to write down like your joy triggers and just go onto these experiences of joy. But if you do that constantly, as Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Because if you keep running away from the darkness, it's going to control you and it will eventually send you into some of these pits like I experienced, depending on the sort of the degree of the darkness, of course. But so the point is, at some point, you have to go into those spaces. You have to face them. You have to confront them and you have to bring them to the surface so you can do decide what to do with them. And I had to do that. You know, I had to confront my survivor's guilt. I had to be with the pain of all of these things. And I started to. So, what, so that, that was kind of starting point is, is recognizing what the darkness and the demons that we really were battling within were instead of doing everything I could to run away from them. Right. And then to start to disidentify from the these things as if that's who I am, as if that's my identity, because, you know, when I came back, as I mentioned, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was told because I had survivor's guilt, because I didn't like loud noises, because I struggled with crowds. These were all symptoms of, quote unquote, post-traumatic stress disorder. The fact of the matter is they were symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but the disorder is an attachment we have created onto those symptoms. The thing is, being jumpy with loud noises is a very normal human response to war. I spent seven months in a war zone where loud noises meant death. Inevitably, I was more hypervigilant than the person next to me. It's not a disorder, you know, quote unquote. It is a normal human response to war. By removing that label disorder, I started to normalize these things I was going through and say, look, that's not who I am. I am not someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm a person who's gone through this intense experience and my brain is having these experiences, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me. I am not my brain. And this is a ruthless, relentless practice of disidentifying with our emotions, with our thoughts, because all of us from time to time, and it still happens to me to this day, today I'm way better at like noticing the space between my thought and who I want to be outside of it. But it still happens where for a moment I might get caught up in the reality of the thought as if that is who I am. Meaning like people will say things like I have depression, I am depressed. And that becomes their identity. That becomes who they are. Instead of saying things like, my brain goes to a state of depression from time to time, but I am not my brain and my brain is not me, yeah. you know, and this is the essence of it. Like to, to kind of summarize it beautifully, Buddha once said that we are all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. The first dart is like, imagine right now if I'm sitting in this room, somebody comes in here with a gun. 
I'm going to feel fear. I'm not pausing to consciously say, let me choose to be afraid. My brain's going to respond with fear because that's a valuable emotional response to external stimuli, such as a man coming in here with a gun, right? The first dart is that. The second dart is what I do with that emotion. Now, people, and I've worked with a ton of people like this. I see this all the time. They will go through fear, go through anxiety. Like I worked with one client who had anxiety every time he sat down to write on the computer. And his problem wasn't the anxiety. His problem was every time that happened, he would think of himself as a piece of shit. He would believe himself worthless. And he would go into what I call the, the, the downward spiral of second dart syndrome, where we just start beating ourselves up because the world tells us, I mean, how often do we hear it in personal development? Like the biggest names in personal development, they will, they will demonize anxiety. And I'm not going to name names, but I've seen them do this in, in some of their events where they will like tell people overcome anxiety instead of saying, Anxiety is a normal human response. It's a normal emotion. It's not a bad emotion. There are no bad or good emotions. There's just emotions. And when you start to accept them, you can use them in a positive way. For example, with my guilt, for a long time after going through a lot of that inner work that I went through, I used my guilt as an ally. I had a picture of my friend on my wall that I lost in the war, and it said, this should have been you. Earn this life. Hmm. Guilt became my fuel. It wasn't a bad emotion. It was just an emotion. It can be used in an empowering way should I choose to do it. But you have to start recognizing the space between the first dart and the second dart. Because as Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. That space will shape our destiny. Understanding that things are a normal human response, I think, allows people to have a little more empathy or, or, um, love for themselves. If they, if they understand yeah. that, I think, I think where exactly. some of the challenges lie are, is when a person doesn't deem their response, uh, as, as normal or, you know, some people, things yeah. just, whether it could be a chemical imbalance, whatever it is, um, f- you know, finding that patience with yourself can be difficult, right? Cause you're going to go, Hey, this is, I'm not responding in a normal way. Yeah, uh, but understanding, man, the human experience is it's, it doesn't follow this blueprint, right? Everyone's a little bit different. You know, I compare the dealing with stress and and trauma, you know, almost like altitude sickness. And people are probably sick of me here, saying this, but the, the idea that we all have different levels of it before it mm-hmm. starts affecting us. Mm-hmm. But no one will tell you to push through altitude sickness, right? They'll tell you, hey, this is this is can be this is dangerous. This can be deadly. Uh, some people mm-hmm. genetically will be able to go higher, but what, but what we all have in common at some point, you're too high, you're too high and you're going to get sick from it. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, f- just having some, some, uh, self love and, and acceptance that, Hey man, this, you know, this may not be easy right now and, and this may not even seem normal, but, uh, you know, I love that idea of, of using it as fuel. Cause that's, that's, it's right. It's how it's packaged. It's how it's delivered really can have a profound effect on somebody. Absolutely. It's the frame we choose to create in response to our emotions and what we do with it that will shape our reality and ultimately our destiny. Hey, I want to take a break just to, uh, to give a little shout out to another organization, and that's called the Patriot Fund. Patriot Fund is a, another 501c3 nonprofit uh, that, that are help, they're helping support us, specifically our veteran programs. This organization supports uh, active duty reservist and veteran organizations doing amazing things within those communities. You guys want to see some of the work that they're doing. You want to, you want to check out, maybe support them. Check out the patriotfund.org. You know, one of the things we're trying to do here is, is we're building connection uh, through purpose and challenge. And, and it sounds uh, a lot like what, what you're doing 
you know, as well, this, this idea of a shared purpose challenge, um, and the feelings that come along with that. I'm sure it's something you felt in Marines. I think it's one of the, the reason people struggle when they, when they lose that identity of being part of mm-hmm. a group of something. Mm-hmm. Um, what, it, what was that experience for you when you first left? How much of that was, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a gear in this giant machine. I'm no longer that this thing that, I mean, listen, we all know when a Marine's a Marine, they're Marine for life. This is a huge part uh, mm-hmm. of them. How was that process for you to realize like, I, I'm not just a Marine, right? I, I'm actually, and I'm a person, I'm all of these other things. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm capable of all of these other things. What, what was that process for you? You know, for me, I mean, bar, like obviously I didn't handle it well initially, as I mentioned, I went yeah. to some rocky. Yeah, right. But now coming out of it, uh, what I how I reframe it now is like to me, the war and this may sound like a little dark to some people when I've said it, that sounds a little dark, but to me, the war is never over. So in the Marines I had a different war, like the war was, you know, literal war that we went and fought and we fought for each other. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to get out is because like war is a paradoxically very peaceful experience. It's a very addictive experience in war. It meets many of the core human needs at their most addictive level. Like you barring the politics of the war, it meets the need you're serving something greater than yourself on the ground. We were there to help the Iraqi people and we were doing some good on the ground, barring the politics outside of the fact we shouldn't have gone all that, all that stuff. I'm just talking on the ground where there's a camaraderie. So you have a deep sense of belonging and life is amplified at a far more intense level than it is in the mundane. Cause you're in a war zone, you know? So you got mission, you got purpose, you got camaraderie, Rodri, you got connection. All of these things are there at this heightened level. You come out of that and now that's all gone. Right. And now some like if some guys have come back and you're working some shit job in McDonald's or Walmart, no shit, you're struggling. Right. Like naturally. So the way it helped me reframing it is that the war is always there's always a war to be fought. It's on us to find what that new war is. And again, some people don't like that word war because it sounds dark. But the fact of the matter is, as I always like to say, like, where it, our brain is in a natural state of conflict anyway. We are going through this shit anyway, and we're all in internal conflict, that war within. Instead of trying to demonize it, let's actually accept it's there and now channel it purposefully into a worthy for, worthy fight, into a worthy war. Into That's what I call the worthy struggle. So now my war is not the same as the war that I fought in the Marines, but I take what I've learned from that and I've applied it, the structure the regiment, the discipline, the connection, finding a worthy war, finding the beauty of that adversity, right? That's all the things I'm still doing now. And everybody's got to find what that own war looks like and frame it as a war because there's power to that. It's not some dark, horrific thing. Like I said, like my fundamental philosophy, I have a philosophy statement that defines the essence of how I live my life. And that statement is the path to inner peace is the pursuit of a worthy inner war. We're all fighting an inner war anyway. You might as well accept it and you might as well look for the worthy one. Because as I said, if you don't see got a worthy struggle, you're going to struggle anyway. So that's what I did. Now I have my war, man. My war, I have a mission to fight for myself. I have a mission to fight. Like every worthy war, there's going to be a self goal and a greater than self goal. Like everything you do, of course, like, I mean, even if you're serving in the Marines to fight for something bigger than yourself, obviously you're getting some joy there that you wouldn't have joined, right? Like, so any, even a selfless goal, there's still some selfishness to it. So I'm always looking at what is the thing that gives me joy and how how is this? How do I translate this to something bigger than myself? And my war is always looking at every mission in that context. This is what the joy I get from it. This is how it makes a bigger than impact. And it's really, really, really important, arguably even essential to think of your goals in the context of how they serve something bigger than yourself as well. 
And to live that way, neurologically, it's actually been shown it will help release oxytocin, the quote unquote love hormone in the brain, which helps you move through fear, helps you move through struggle. And they've done all kinds of studies. Like, for example, they did a study where they had people go into a job interview and they had half the group think about this, getting this job in the context of how it would help other people, how it'd be you know, good for the greater whole. And the other half just think about how it would help them. To objective third-party viewers, the people who thought about their 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 job in the context of something greater, they performed far better to objective third-party viewers. And there's, again, multiple studies that sort of validate this. When you think of your goals in something greater, in the context of something greater, it enhances your own ability to move through struggle, and you perform better at whatever the craft is. So tying that in, finding that war, and you'll find peace. I mean, it's a proven fact that, I mean, they, they, they've looked at people suffering and just, just doing something as small as petting a dog taking mm-hmm. something away from yourself and being part of something bigger than you exactly. uh, and caring for something else is, is got a profound effect on people, you know, absolutely. You, and we we're looking at even in doing like things like environmental service work where, where people get together. We, we, we talk about things like this. We talk about uh, the inner struggle, just you personally, you know, the same things that you might go over in like a 12 step or, or, or something along those lines, but then being part of when we say service work, we're doing things outside um, some type of something to, to help with sustainability, something with the environment, because that idea of being part of something bigger than you is the opposite of addiction. It's the opposite of being, because addiction in itself is a very selfless or selfish thing, right? Yeah, everything's about you. It's mm-hmm. feeling a certain way. Um, and so there's extreme power in that. When you're doing your missions now, you know, some people might not agree with you as, on what you're doing on, on the positive stuff. Uh, or it would say, man, that sounds very painful. Explain to everybody. Yeah. Explain what the being part of something bigger than you part is of, of, of what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. You know, now when I go out and run ultra marathons, I ski, I just returned from Antarctica where I got frostbite. I make a very conscious effort to document the entirety of the journey and share the lessons I learned. And I've gotten message from tons of people who've said this is how they've inspired them. You know, like I recently I did a talk and somebody hearing my talk after hearing it lost all this weight and went and hiked Everest base camp, you know? So for me now, I push myself on these edges that a lot of people don't want to go. And that's okay. Like they don't have to like, again, it's about finding your own worthy struggle. But the point that I'm making and why I say that is by going so far onto the edge, you gain some lessons and you open some doors into the human soul that you will not open had you not gone that far out onto the edge. Mm-hmm. You like the further you go, the, the, the greater treasures you're going to discover. And so I'm blessed to have lived a great deal of life and that I find joy in this, you know? I mean, sure, like maybe I, I could have been someone else who didn't find joy and I wouldn't go do these crazy things, get frostbite on three fingers and, you know, and the cons- potential consequences of death, of course, but I do get great joy from it. And to me, it's an obligation to share that journey. And so that's kind of how I do it. And and it fuels me when I'm out there, you know, like, I mean, when I was in Antarctica, I remember one day we had a 10 hour day this time and I was exhausted, ready to go to bed, but I made sure to share the, the sort of the, the daily report that day before I went to bed, just because I know it was making an impact for people following along because everybody's going through their own version of a polar storm that I was facing in Antarctica, right? Everybody's facing their own storms. And so I get to experience it at a very, very, very intense level. And therefore I gain lessons that will translate and, and have in tremendous value in a more sort of, and this is not to like compare, like, because everybody's suffering is relative to their own experience of it, right? One person can be on hell on earth and feel less suffering than somebody who's objectively seeming to be more comfortable. This is why we see people who seemingly have everything and yet they struggle with depression and take their own life, right? Like I kind of went through it at a moment. So point is to say though, is that in these very, very intense extreme scenarios, 
I open doors to new treasures and I then my role, my responsibility to serving something greater than myself is to bring those treasures to my human family and help and have them be able to apply it in whatever way they see fit. Yeah, I would think, and this isn't from my own lived experience, and this is something I've asked other people that that kind of do some fairly extreme things is I would imagine that there's a challenge by other people seeing what you're doing and it being so extreme. Like, um, like, like a Jocko or, or, and, and where I would almost challenge those people. How do you motivate and empower other people who see this and think that that person might as well be another species? Like, how do you make that human connection go? No, 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 we're the same. Um, yes, I'm out here. I'm living on these fringes, but because of X, Y, Z, this should, you know, this is how we're going to connect. Yeah, no, it's a great question because I get that all the time. Like people will be like, oh, Akshay's just crazy. He's special. I'm not some special like person. And I wasn't born this way. I used to be terrified of roller coasters when I was a kid. I was terrified of a Ferris wheel. Forget about a roller coaster. I was scared of everything. I systematically built myself into this person today. And as I said, I was born into a great family and a comfortable life. I didn't have to go seek the play on the edges. I'm a black sheep in my family. My direct family, my extended family think I'm a nut job because I'm the, I like, they even like, they joke with my parents joke all the time that Akshay got mixed up in the hospital you know so I, 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 I to this day sometimes it's weird that i kind of am what i am because there was no his like a family history in this realm of outdoor adventure at this level at all point is to say i built myself into this identity not to mention i am far from genetically gifted as i mentioned i have a blood disorder that transports about 25 to 30 percent less oxygen in my blood than a normal guy that's a significant percent of less oxygen flowing through my blood less than ideal for anybody let alone an athlete i'm flat-footed i have scoliosis i have another condition where a gastroenterologist just told me that my body doesn't absorb nutrients too well because some of the lion in my esophagus, something or the other. So I'm, the point is to say, I'm not a genetically gifted athlete by any means. I built myself into this by cultivating, like cultivating this identity through a relentless amount of effort through action, as well as through a, like a constant process of self-awareness and, and inner dialogue, controlling that self-talk, but it is fucking brutal. That level of work is far from easy. And that's the thing that like I stress and I cannot stress enough is to people is that that's what made me this. And I still struggle. I'm not by any means every day, char like perfect and not even remotely. I have low moments. I have to constantly work at myself. That shit does not end, you know, so. I, I highlight that point to, to, to show people, but sometimes what some, what some people, what, like, it's easy to say, oh, like Jocko or Akshay or Dave Goggins, whatever, they're crazy, they're special, because then we then it's easier for us to justify why we're not living our dreams. Yes. And I know that can be a harsh thing for somebody to hear, but I hope somebody hears it and actually says, you know what, shit, that is true. And believe me, I've done that shit in the past too, man. When, when, when I was in some dark places, I would just think, oh, that guy's like, I can't do that, like they're special. And all I'm doing is making it that much easier to to surrender to my own victimhood, right? And, and blame the world for shit. Instead of saying, you know what? I can become who the fuck I want to become if I put enough work into it, you know? And that's who I am. Like I said, I'm not genetically gifted, but I work my ass off. I may not ever be the fastest runner in the world, but you better believe I will accomplish my missions of what I said, because I'm going to work my ass off to, to do that. Yeah, it, it can be a cop-out, right? It, it's very easy to say uh, somebody's doing something or, uh, I mean, uh, that person ran like that because they're on steroids or they look like that because of X, yeah. Y, Z. Um, so, so I, I completely get that, but it all starts with habits, right? Like everything you've achieved has been the consequences of, of your habits. Uh, Absolutely. what, 
So today you wake up, what does your day look like? I know you've got some, you're training for some very specific things and we'll kind of get into those, but uh, what are some of the, the habits that you've cultivated that have really added some, some positive impact to your life? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the constant, like the number one thing you can do, and this is not just me saying it, a keystone habit that Charles Duhigg calls uh, the quote unquote keystone habits. Keystone habits are habits that translate into all other areas of your life. You do this one habit and it makes other areas of your life better as well. Best thing you can do is exercise. Uh, exercise, like one neuroscientist calls it miracle growth for the brain. Another says if you could if you could take the effects of exercise into a pill, it'd be the best selling pill of all time. You know, so exercise. And these are a lot of the basics that sound like really fundamental. But when you actually ask people, people will be like, oh, that's not I've heard that a million times. But are you doing it is the real question, not whether you've heard it a million times. Exercise, n- controlling your sleep, you know, having a strict sleep schedule, making sure you're, you're getting enough of that, you know, doing some of these basics, eating the right foods because what you put in your food is, is fuel. So how do you how do you do some of that if you if you haven't started, you know, start small, build in a small. I didn't I didn't. I wasn't a I, dude. I used to hate long distance running. I was literally when I was a kid, I would do anything. I would, I would, I would do hundred meter sprints when I was in sports days in school, sure. but even 400 meters, I hated today. I'm an ultra runner. You know what I mean? So again, you build yourself slowly. So start small, schedule it in your day. A lot of these basics, like the way you want to think about systematizing your life is that to remember there's freedom and structure. You, the true freedom actually lies in creating a self-imposed prison, because if you don't create a self-imposed prison with rules and constraints, you will be a slave. You will be a slave to your feelings and to your thoughts and to your brain that is always naturally seeking the laziest and easiest course of action. Standard human psychology. The brain is going to retreat to the laziest, easiest course of action. So if you don't have structure to guide you, you are a slave to your feelings, which most of us are. We live in that because... It feels good, man. Like if I'm a slave to my feelings and I do this thing that feels good, I'm in, I'm in it. But having that structure and doing the hard thing is fucking hard. That's the nature of the hard thing. But when you create structure, it, it in time, it makes it automatic. So, you know, building systems to see where you can eliminate decisions for your life. And this is why you see successful people like the Steve Jobs, the world wearing the same shirt every day, like at a simplistic level, because they don't want to waste energy, cognitive energy, mental energy, thinking about what shirts to wear. So I have structures for how I live my life. That way, my cognitive and my physical energy is saved for the fight for whatever my worthy struggle is, because any worthy struggle is going to be hard. And you want to save your physical, your mental, your spiritual energy for that fight and everything else ritualize, systematize, schedule it, create a structure, create a checklist. There's a great book by, forget the name of the author, but wrote Checklist Manifesto, turning everything into a checklist. So I have like a checklist for my morning routine. I have a checklist for a night flow, my diet, you know, like obviously it gets a little off when I'm traveling and, and tweak it. But when I'm in, in, in the, you know, in the, in the flow, it's, it's on point like a machine, you know, and the, eat the same thing every day. So I don't have to think about what to eat for breakfast. It's just the same damn thing, you know? And when you follow that, you save your energy and then you can focus on the fight ahead. The, the idea of freedom and structure, and, and you know, you, I've heard that before. Like discipline equals freedom, and it, it seems counterintuitive. Yeah, it's like it does it seems counterintuitive, right? You says if I have to do this or I can't do this, well, that's not freedom. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and, I mean, t- today today marks my three year, right? Three years no booze, two day, and I thought, and I yeah. as I was, I woke up this morning and I thought about it. And what it is, is it's three years of freedom from that poison, three years of of freedom from this one thing that dictates how, like it dictates how you're going to start your day because it depends on how shitty you felt from the day before it dictates how day your how long your day is going to last because you know, come a certain time, you're not, you're just not productive. You're not doing the things that you, you're compromising the person you could be. Right. So, 
Uh, it, it is it is very strange. I think it's just as counterintuitive as, as chasing dopamine equals pain. Like it's it, it's like exactly. Yeah. And if we flip the script on that, if we if we really if somebody can flip the script and understand, like I'm not holding things back for myself. I'm opening opportunities. I'm being kind exactly. to myself, not being exactly. hard on myself. Uh, you know, it, the problem is going back to acceptance. You have to accept the fact that it's not going to be comfortable. Things aren't comfortable. And if they were, you're probably not going to feel all that great about yourself after it's done anyway. Uh, yeah. the feeling of pride that you must feel the highs you must feel when you've gone through the lows with a, with a, with a goal in mind must be unbelievable. It's, 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 it's everything. I mean, it's life. It's the human experience at its absolute finest, man. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Self-actualization being the highest one. And actually there is a higher one, which is self-transcendence. Self-transcendence is found through suffering. Like I always like to say that suffering is a training ground for self-transcendence, which is why I go into these spaces. Like I know I will suffer in Antarctica when I run ultra marathons, when I'm writing a book, building a business, anything worthwhile, right? I will suffer. But what I'm seeking is not the suffering in and of itself. The suffering is the means, not the purpose. The purpose is the transcendence. It's exactly what you said. It's that discovery within yourself to tap into the strength to transcend the suffering. Because you cannot really know your strength unless you've struggled. You cannot know your power unless you've been through pain. You can't experience courage unless you know fear. It takes no courage to sit on your couch and watch a movie. Courage only happens when there is fear and when you transcend it. So why I play in the realm of suffering is because it taps into the arena of self-transcendence, which is everything, man. That is the essence of the human experience at its finest. That is, call it God, call it the divine. Like That is what we, why we are here beyond survival. Once we, once we transcend survival needs, why, what do we do? Right. Why, why do anything ultimately people? Cause I get the question a lot. Why do you go do this shit? You could get, I mean, when I, when I told people I'm going back to Antarctica after getting frostbite, you're stupid, you're insane. You're crazy. What's wrong with Akshay? All of that stuff. Right. And because it's like, but to me and the people who get me, why would you not go back? Mm. Yeah. You fall, you play hard. You're going to fall. Right. But if you break every time you fall, what life is that when I go back because I've learned from the fall and I rise back up and it's in that rising, it's in that rising. That is the experience of the divine man. Like that, what that is that human experience at its absolute finest, but you got to go into the space of suffering to know that transcendence because the deeper you go, the more you open new doors and every new door you open, you will find new treasures and those treasures are what make life worth living man yeah i guess it's the price of admission right your fingers right now are the price of admission have you claw- small price to pay small price to pay for what i experienced and what i will continue to experience have you ever questioned like that uh is is am i chasing something like if that wasn't there um like how, where do i go from there going back to an identity thing uh, tomorrow, actually, your visa has been revoked. Uh, we're, you're under house arrest. You've got nothing. You've got nothing else. How much of your identity is wrapped in this? And then how do you tr- how do you navigate that? Uh, you know, from that point on. There's always a way, like, for example, when the pandemic first hit, I did a 50 mile run around a cul-de-sac, around a 0.05 mile cul-de-sac, like a thousand loops around this cul-de-sac. Why? I wanted to show people because a lot of people were like, oh, my gym is closed. I can't go running in the parks. 
that's not a fucking excuse. Like, granted, I'm not getting in pandemic, pandemic politics, but like about all that shit. But that's not a fucking excuse of why you can't play in those arenas, man. Do a thousand fucking burpees at home. You will suffer. You will go into the pain cave and you will find your power through that pain cave. Right. So the point is to say, look, barring serious physical issues. And one of my aunts, for example, is paralyzed from the neck down. Different animals, shit like that. Right. And you have to confront you have to go to war with yourself and your mind in different ways. So barring some very, very extreme scenarios, there's always a way to find some avenue to to play in those realms, right? To open new doors, shit, sit in a dark room for one day, start, go do do an 80 hour. Like before going to Antarctica, I did an 80 hour fast. You can do that at home, you know, lock yourself in a room for 24 hours, see what happens. I guarantee you'll find something that you've never found before. That's why I spent, that's why I go into seven days of darkness. You know, it's a different kind of challenge. So the point is like, it's easy to find excuses about why I can't do this. Like, don't get me wrong. I still want to go to Antarctica. If that was, if all of the shit was taken away from me, would I be disappointed? Of course I would. Yeah. Would I find another way eventually? Fuck yeah, I would. You know? So the, the thing is like, there's always a way. And if, the, and if the, if the thing you want is, let's say, going to Antarctica, like I wasn't able to go back on a long term expedition for years. The last longest expedition I did was in Greenland in 2012, because these expeditions are absurdly expensive. Antarctica cost me hundred thousand dollars. So I had to get myself to a point that I could afford it. And now that I can, I'm blessed to go do this. And I'm going to keep playing in this because I have the space to. And if you're saying I want to go do that, but I don't have the money yet. Instead of beating yourself up, ask yourself the question. Like I always like to say, a problem statement is a door. A question, sorry, a problem statement is a wall. A question is a door. So instead of saying, I have no money, turn it into a question. How can I make more money? How can I get that money? When you start asking questions, that's how you solve problems. Like turning barriers into questions, turning problems into questions is how you now start looking for solutions to those questions. Because when you ask the question long enough, you will start finding answers. You know, and then you'll pursue those answers. So if you're like, listen to me, I want to go to Antarctica, but I don't have $100,000 yet. Awesome. I didn't either at one point. Find yourself, ask the question and start working your ass off to get there. And in time, you will. If you work, put enough work, you, you, you know, you do the, the process, you do the work, get that feedback, step back, take in the feedback, keep improving, keep working. Like all growth is two things. Find the problem, fix the problem, find what's working and do more of it. So to summarize kind of what I just said. Look for the goal you want to create, turn the problem statement into a question, start looking for answers, pursue the path obsessively, and then look for what the problem is to fix systematically one inch at a time. Look for what's working and keep doing more of it. And you keep repeating that cycle over and over again. You will eventually get to where you want to go. It's just like it's inevitable. It may take you one year. It may take you 20. But if you keep fighting and you keep incorporating feedback, you'll fucking get there. And it develops an operating system that that is that once it's installed, it that manifests itself in all aspects of life. Like this idea, yeah, exactly. this, this idea that, that the obstacle is the way, uh, it's the truth. You know, you, you have a challenge and, and within that, uh, the growth that comes from, from navigating that, uh, will transcend. It, it can, it can be used in every other aspect and there becomes a sense of awareness. I, I'm, my experience has been, uh, that, that, that comes along with that. When you, you talk about that, that moment between, uh, a stimuli and a reaction. The more we we realize that split second, uh, mm-hmm. the more you're gonna you're gonna realize in every other aspect of your life. And you know this this idea of freedom. You know, right now, and this isn't to get into politics because that's not what this this is about. Like we, everyone has this idea of uh, um, of freedom, right? I want to be free to do this. I want to be free to do that. Without understanding that, with the, a lot of the 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 prison cells we live in, they're in our own mind, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's something about challenges, what opens those, those doors up. And spe- speaking of challenge, you mentioned, uh, 
you've got you've got something coming up here where you're going to be in a dark room for ten days straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to break this down for us. Uh, explain okay. what 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 the goal of it is. Um, you've done this before, so obviously there's something that comes from that that mm-hmm. uh, is bringing you back to it. Uh, break that down for us. Yeah. So what, what this is, is called a darkness retreat where you spend last time I did it was seven. This time I'll be doing 10 days. So 10 days in complete darkness, like cannot see your hand in front of you. Darkness, complete darkness, silence, and isolation. So just sitting in a tiny room for 10 days in the dark. Last time I did it was for seven days. And what happens is when you're in this, in, in periods of intense darkness like this, your brain starts to naturally release DMT, which is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. So you experience these hallucinogenic light shows essentially Mm -hmm. like for example when i was five days into the dark retreat last time the brightest white light i've ever seen in my entire life brightest white light sitting in a dark room i was literally touching my eyelids like this because i couldn't tell if they were open or closed i was covering my eyes trying to shield them from a blinding light sitting in a dark room that's wild and the so why i go well last time i went was so today i'm I'm, this time i'm going in from a very different level of consciousness last time what happened without going too deep down the rabbit hole, I went through a very challenging divorce. I broke my sobriety. I did not like that about myself. So I wanted to go deeper to find some answers. And so I went in to sort of heal the past. And when you are sitting still with yourself in the darkness, you have nowhere external to go. Now, have you heard of silent retreats? Like the Vipassana, they have these 10 day silent retreats. Those are much more popular, much more common, right? But a silent retreat, you're still seeing the world. And dark in darkness, you're shutting off one of the primary ways in which we engage with the world, which is our visual sense. So when I have nowhere outside to go, my brain cannot say at the simplistic level, that's a wall, that's a door. It has nowhere external to go. And therefore, we are forced forced to go within. Now, that is an arduous, daunting, and brutal journey. You are going to wrestle some dragons on that journey. You are going to fight some demons. But when you go through that process, you will find the light in a way that you have never known it before. And in a very concrete example... I got a lot from my time in the darkness, but the most profound moment was when I came out of darkness after seven days. And when I op- when I took off my mask sitting there in Germany in the black forest, looking out in the black forest, the way I saw the world through those eyes, no words can really describe it. Like I remember thinking two thoughts that one, I wish I could see the world every day through these eyes, which inevitably I couldn't, it normalizes and acclimatizes once again to the light. Sure. But the second thought was, this deep sense of gratitude. And I don't just mean like, oh, I feel grateful. I'm talking like from the core of my soul, a knowingness, a visceral gratitude that I could never truly know the light unless I had first been in the dark. Mm. The only way I saw the world look like that is because I had spent seven days in darkness. And so it, it opens, it goes so far into your soul that you will find something in, in the human experience that you've just never found before. You've never, no, nobody, like, especially in today's world, we're so distracted from ourselves, right? And Carl Jung puts it beautifully when he said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid confronting their own soul. And we do everything to avoid confronting our own soul. When you go into darkness, you have nowhere outside yourself to run. And it's a hard journey because the thing, and even this is the thing with meditation, like people often think of meditation as this very calming, peaceful exercise. And sure it is. But the thing is when you are still and you start going into yourself, you're opening doors, right? And in those doors, what's going to come out is dragons as well as like the beauty, right? You're opening doors to darkness as well as light demons, as well as divinity. So what's going to flood out those floodgates, you won't even know, but you have to be ready for it because it's going to be a lot of things that come out. There's going to be all of it the light and the dark, and you're going to have to sit with that and be with it. But when you do, 
That's how you'll find your freedom, because if you don't, it's, it's in there anyway. It's controlling your life anyway. But if you bring it to the surface, now you can decide what to do with it instead of letting it control you. So now when I go back into the darkness, I'm not going in with the, with the, with the frame of healing the past. I'm going in with an eye to the future because I'm training for many solo expeditions where I'll be spending very, very long periods of time completely alone in, in places like Antarctica. And so I'm going back in for a little longer because I want to go a little deeper. 10 days is about 50% more time. So I'm going to go much, much deeper into the darkness. And I want to see what I find, man. Like usually in life, I'm a very outcome oriented person. I set a goal. I work towards it in the darkness. I don't set like an intention. I just surrender. I have a sense of what I'm going there for, but I completely surrender and see what the darkness will reveal. And man, it's a insightful, terrifying journey, but yeah. a profound one for sure. I mean, I'm, you mentioned that it releases DMT and that's the exact reason a lot of people go, go around these retreats. It's, you know, they're, they're obviously using ayahuasca or, or, or something else, but, um, that's part of it. If not knowing what you're, you're going into. And I was, I was literally having a conversation with uh, a friend of mine yesterday and he's a, he's a meditation and mindfulness instructor. And we were talking about, I was talking about doing breath work myself. And, uh, I, you know, I was doing like a, like a Wim Hof style, uh, breath work session. And like, I, I, all of a sudden I just had tears coming down my face and I had no idea why I'm like, I have no, idea. Mm-hmm. like, and then he kind of, he mentioned something called, I think it's called like a backdraft or something. And it's, it's like, sometimes man, you'll just tap into stuff. You had no idea it's there. Like stuff yeah, just comes yeah. to the surface and, uh, totally. you know, and that's, that's a good thing, right? Like that's the whole it point is. is to understand, uh, or, or get these emotions that, you know, I compared it to even my process of, of one of my lows was, uh, it was, I compared it to being like a, a pressure cooker and it starts leaking. And that for me came out and manifests itself in, you know, anxiety, mm. addiction, all these different things of constant, like I couldn't hold it anymore. Like something had to give. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a whole shit ton that gives in 10 days of sitting in a dark room. Absolutely, my friend. <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to be an intense and profound journey for sure. Uh, a couple more questions. One, so you've written a book, uh, Fearvana, and one of you, you've got, uh, I don't know if it's a, considered a forward, but the Dalai Lama mentions this, right? Now you want to talk about some credibility. I mean, there, <laughs> there's, there's some, there's, there's some people that sign a book and, and it really means something. How did that come to be? Have you studied under them? I mean, how the heck did that happen? It was a pure cold pitch. You know, I just, uh, re, yeah, I didn't have a network. didn't connect. I, I still haven't been blessed to meet him, but, um, it was just a cold pitch. I reached out to, I spent a lot of time researching and finding a name and, and a point of contact in his holiness's office. I reached out to him. I shot a, this particular monk in his holiness's office, uh, shot a personal video of everything I've been through, what we want to do with Fearvana, what the mission is. He reached, he connected me to one other monk to another monk. So I finally got to the right monk three months later over after six months of building a relationship with this particular monk, staying connected. He wrote me back and, uh, and said, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And one thing I really want to highlight about this, because I think this is the most valuable lesson, is when I first wrote Fearvana, I thought it's a very spiritual concept. Who's the sort of spiritual leader that be to, to, to endorse it? I was an author with no platform, no brand, nothing, right? And I thought Dalai Lama would be really cool. And I immediately shut down that thought. Oh, there's no way. Who am I? 
all that good stuff that we all go through, right? Like I was no platform. I'm unknown. Why would the Dalai Lama endorse my book? And then I said, later on, I said, well, why not try? What's the worst that could happen? He says, no, I'm exactly where I am before. Right. Uh, and I tried And over the five, six months of reaching out to this particular monk, I was constantly feeling self-doubt. Why aren't they emailing me back? What if they hate my book? That's not going to happen. The thing is we can listen to our thoughts can be there, but we don't have to listen to them. We don't have to let our actions be defined by them. So I could feel the doubt, but I could follow up anyway, right? Stay in connection. And I didn't ask for a forward. I only asked for a one line sort of endorsement and there, and I was truly blessed and completely honored and humbled that he wrote the forward for my book. And that's been, I mean, obviously just for spiritually, for me, just a huge honor and a blessing, but in terms of marketing the book and getting it out there, just life changing you know, it's huge. Uh, It's huge. And I'm reading a book about this now called the third door, right? Like this, this idea of, Mm -hmm. of don't sell yourself short. Like you can always find a way there's the front door that everyone stands in line Mm -hmm. and you may never get there. There's the back door for the VIPs that, that they're either, they've got, you know, this might be the cop out thing, but uh, they've got money genetically. They're built a certain way, but there's, then there's the third door. And that's the guy who's, who's got a, you know, he's got a blood disorder. Uh, you know, he's got every, he's got all of these different things yet still finds right. a way. And, and, uh, that usually includes hustling. Um, and then, like you said, being aware that, you know, going back to the freedom, when, when you, when you put that power in other people's hands, Hey, I'm good enough. I'm not good enough. Uh, and then uh, that, that split moment between those, those thoughts of going, you know, I'm not going to put that power. I'm not, I'm going to keep my own freedom. I'm not going to put that power in their hands and I'm going to continue. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep continuing to fight and uh, shit. Here you are, man. So, <laughs> Hey, and I, you know, I mentioned Rob, I had Robert Swan on the, uh, on the podcast here. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen anything he's done or, or had a chance because th- he's going back to Antarctica with his son, uh, Barney Swan, and they've got a project. I think it's called 2041. Um, where, where in, in 2041, Antarctica is going to be opened up for, uh, for, you know, it's, it's, it's been closed for anything except for science, right. For the most part. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of companies that would like to get in there and start looking for natural resources, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. I'm thinking you guys might have uh, some similar interests here and, mm-hmm. and maybe connect you guys. They're going to be, uh, going across Antarctica using nothing, uh, nothing petroleum. They're going to be doing everything off of solar and, and completely sustainable, okay. which I thought was kind of cool as well. Very um, cool. Yeah. What is it about Antarctica? What is it about the cold uh, that draws you? You know, and Antarctica is so hostile, unforgiving, inhospitable to man. Like barring on the coastline where there's some penguins, there's no life in Antarctica. So experiencing this land that is so it's we are not designed to let let alone thrive there. We're not designed to survive there. And so when you go into spaces like that, you have to find something within yourself to survive and thrive there. And that discovery is like only a place like Antarctica or these these extreme environments can open up, you know, because they become playgrounds to explore the human soul. You find in, in nature. See, when when nature is hostile, it doesn't act out of malice or intent like man does, right? Like human beings do. And I've seen the darkness of man and God knows we can do some pretty fucked up shit to each other. Nature doesn't act out of that hostility. It just is. So when a polar storm happens, it's not trying to destroy you. It just is. It just happens. And the isness of that 
is so profound. It's so beautiful to experience that because it humbles you. You know, as human beings, we often think that we are like gods of the world, right? We, we act like it. We certainly do. So many of us, nature will humble you. Like being in a polar storm, I have like this permanent scar here now, windburn from Antarctica beyond the frostbite, which is going to take the tips of two of my fingers. It left a mark, you know, and I have no regrets. Like I'm planning on going back this later this year. And that's what draws me to it because these environments demand you to be a better version of yourself in order to survive and thrive in those environments. And so I go out there seeking that, that exploration of my own evolution, using nature as a playground to tap into that. And it's not just my evolution. Like I'm not just going deeper into my soul. It's tapping into the human soul, right? Because you really start and the, the, the spiritual experience of this cannot truly be explained in words. It can only be understood when you play in the arena, but there's a sense of oneness you feel with yourself with mind body spirit with the earth you feel a part of it you recognize how humbling it is to be a part of it and how small you are in this world a oneness with the human condition with the people on your team with those who are part of you like as i was saying earlier you know like in antarctica everything gets amplified the intensity of life is so much more heightened and so i remember in antarctica really like missing people i care about like my loved ones you know my friends my family my puppies and you feel that love at a more intense level. You know, it's not that I was missing that, like, oh, I want to go back. In fact, I was grateful for Antarctica for opening that feeling in a way that I that you don't really get as much of it in the in this world, in the normal world. And so I love what it taps into, what it what it exposes within you, what it reveals, and that purity of it, that savagery of it is it's very, it's very uh, it's just it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. I think purity is a great word. I think suffering brings a sense of honesty that you can't find in other places. And mm-hmm. and I went this next question. I'm only asking because I felt I've struggled this with myself. Have you have you ever struggled with the idea of of uh, bringing this sense of purity, talking about your experiences and everything that comes along with it on on social platforms that. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, it's just a surface level thing. It's not a true connection. Um, is that something you've ever like thought about? Like that, how that, how that comes across or navigates or how you navigate it? Yeah, for sure, man. I had struggled with social media for a long time. <laughs> like if I had to choose between, you know, obviously like anything, there's some good that can come from sure. it. But if I had to say it does the good outweigh the bad, in my opinion, hell no. Like, I think it does far more damage than good. Fact of the matter is it's not going anywhere. I, I'm not going to like, I'm not at a war against social media. It's certainly not going anywhere. So I do what I can to leverage it as a tool to make an impact. Like I've had people when they write me and they see an Instagram story that I shared, like, Hey, this really inspired me to get to the gym today when I was struggling or whatever it may be, some things like that, you know? So I try to share, I'm not sharing like, you know, sure. There's moments of entertainment. I'll share a cute video of my puppy with some lesson, but 90% of 99% of what I share has a value add to it. I'm not sharing stupid fucking cat videos. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> hang like, in there. like I, I'm not using it to say, Hey, look, here's like, dude, I, I'm not going to, I can go on a fucking long rant about, I mean, I'm just baffled sometimes of why people will share the most inane things. And it's like fucking 20,000 likes. Like what about that is, and that's like the voyeuristic kind of crap. I don't try to feed into. Yeah. And look, I'm not for everybody. Clearly I'm not for everybody. Some people are going to dislike me. Some people are not going to resonate with my ethos and that's fine. You know, but I, what I do share is some lessons that hopefully will make an impact that with, with some meaning to it. And I don't go out there ever like sharing three times a day. I've literally seen some people sharing three times a day. And then they will say things like get off social media and go do the work. If you're telling your audience to get off social media, why the fuck are you sharing three times a day? You know, like, so I share once in a while with the message that hopefully they can apply and then, you know, come back to it. And now look, I'm not saying I'm changing people's social media behavior through my actions, but at least I don't want to contribute to the, 
to the toxic nature of it, you know? So I'll do what I can to add some value to some people. Uh, but don't get me wrong, man. It's a relationship that I still struggle with. Uh, so I just try to bring people into my world and see how I live because I also know that human beings, like we, we, we soak in from the world implicitly, right? Like as Jim Rohn said, we are the average of the five person you spend the most, the most time with, right? Because we, what we surround ourselves with, we start to become even without conscious effort, if it's enough around us. So I just share my day when I'm, I've gone for an hour and a half run today, something simple, but someone who might be watching it. And I know for a fact, because, because people have wrote me this, it will inspire them to get out that day, you know? So when people see how I live and I'm very authentic about my lows, as well as my highs, I kind of share it all openly. And hopefully in that it's, it's a, uh, it's leading a mark on a few people's souls, you know, and that's ultimately what it's about. Oh man. I love, first of all, I want to say, I love everything you put up there and, 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 I bring, I bring that, I bring it up because I host this thing called Consequence of Habit. We have a nonprofit called Consequence of Habit. Uh, and I know the negative effects that social media can have. I can, I can see sure. the negative effects it's, it's had on me. You know, I love to say like, yeah, I don't scroll through, but that's bullshit. I, it, it, it gets <laughs> the me. Best right. Yeah. Right. So, uh, you know, I always kind of struggle with that myself. And, and, uh, so I was just kind of curious on what your thoughts are on it, but <clears throat> With that said, man, this is a shitty transition. If people want to find <laughs> you, uh, if one, people want to find out, find out more information about you and see authentic, great content that will inspire you, uh, actually, where, 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 where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Fearvana. Instagram is the one I use the most. Uh, YouTube channel, Fearvana. My website is fearvana.com. That's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A. The book is available on Amazon, Audible, Kindle, paperback, and 100% of the profits of the book go to charity. So we support a lot of beautiful uh, causes all over the globe. And any one of those places you can find me here, hopefully get some value from the lessons and follow along with my adventures. And I'm, I'm stoked for you. I'm stoked to watch how this thing plays Thank out. You, um, you're inspiring people. You're inspiring me. So keep doing what you're doing and uh, hope to see some more exciting stuff come for me. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate you having me on. Everybody, that's a wrap. Like always, thanks again for checking this out. This show is brought to you by the team here at Consequence of Habit and is an arm of our 501c3 nonprofit. The show is produced and edited by the one and only Anthony Palmer is part of the Palm Tree Pod Company network of podcasts. That's it. I'll catch you guys next week.